Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, a podcast that helps you stretch that bi-weekly paycheck just a little further with tips on how to get the most out of your mayonnaise jar, conserve electricity by putting pillow bumpers on sharp edges for ease of motion in the dark, and telling you what best buy and expiration dates are more suggestions, plus home remedies for any foodborne illness. Don't forget, if you want to follow along at home, you can find the master list on our website, http colon backslash backslash www.geocities.com slash radtomcrow slash podcasts slash good ideas slash once every two weeks slash index dot html. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school, join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years, one album at a time. How are you doing today? I am well. How are you in the great country of the United States? I am well as well, but where are you? I am in the Netherlands today. All right. How are you enjoying it over there? It's beautiful, and everybody here bikes. Legitimately, I see more bikes than cars, and it's lovely. Nice. Yeah. I miss riding my bike everywhere. Yeah, Denver's not a very bike-friendly city, is it? No. Mostly I stopped when I moved to Salt Lake because biking, much less going outside in the summer, was just death. You didn't want to get hit by a car because... I've I've had a car door open on me before. Oof, that's awful. I landed on my butt and jacked up their door. Hmm. It's one of the benefits of being a bigger guy is people tend to see you and then see that you're going to hurt their car. So Beck does not have this problem. No, he does not. As we learned in our One Hit Wonders episode. Indeed. You know, I was re-listening to that and doing the show notes, and you did, you did a fine job editing, Mark. Thank you. The whole Joel singing thing was, was rather delightful. Yes, I couldn't not keep that bit in. <laughs> I was almost tempted to do it again now, but I thought, nope, people heard that last week. That's enough. we got to do something else. Yep. Did you see the 30th anniversary of Dookie is coming out? I did. Did you see how much it costs? I did not. Almost $180. Yeah. It's six discs, but... While I like Dookie, <laughs> that's getting sound clipped. I know I'm going to hear that again. Yeah, I don't like it that much. There are very few bands that would pay that much money for a vinyl, and they did not make the cut. Right. You know, one of those bands, if they did a deluxe thing with previously unrecorded music and interviews and stuff, if they did a release that was $180 that I would pay that for, do you know what one of those bands would be? Your mom? The Cure. Well, they probably do have a vinyl edition of Join the Dots. Hmm. Note to self, Google later. <laughs> it's their collection of B-sides and unreleased, and it's super good. Nice. Yeah. Did you know that Robert Smith predicted the death of the Queen of England? I think everybody probably did. To what extent did he predict it? She died on September 7th. In an interview, he predicted that she would die on September 8th. Oh, that's creepy. And that the masses would rise up and place him as king. Okay, so he was almost half right. Yes. How many years in advance was that? 
that was in an interview that he gave in 2012. <laughs> he didn't specify the year of her death, so it's less impressive in that context because then, you know, every September 8th rolling around for 10 years, but being just a day off. Pretty impressive. Yeah. It took 10 years for her to die, so maybe it's going to take 10 more for, you know, Charles to mess up and the people to revolt and Robert to take power. They haven't done it yet. I don't think they're going to over Charles. I mean, we'll see. Anyway. As a proper introduction to this episode, I want to quote Trent Reznor from the speech he gave while inducting The Cure into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He said, Tonight we are here to give praise and respect to one of the most instantaneously recognizable and sonically unique rock bands of the 20th and 21st centuries. They've changed the face of popular music indelibly during their 40-year history without ever having to compromise their sound or aesthetic. I found something very surprising about this. What's that? I didn't realize that they weren't inducted until 2019. Yes. That was surprising to me. I would have thought they would have been inducted back in the 90s. They'd been eligible for almost a decade at that point, and they had been nominated one time previously in 2012. Who was inducted then? I don't know. Guns N' Roses, The Beastie Boys, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Donovan, Laura Nero, and Small Faces. Yeah. Now, I know you're a big Beastie Boys fan, but I think we can both still agree The Cure deserves that much more than The Beastie Boys did. Mm, maybe as much. Both are definitely much more rock and roll than Donovan. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest there. Sorry, Ghost of Mom. I know you love Donovan, but he's not rock and roll. No. But then again, maybe if they had been inducted in an earlier time, Robert wouldn't have been as indifferent or salty to give us one of the greatest celebrity interview clips of all time go on as they're walking the red carpet that night an overly zealous interviewer comes up super bouncy and happy and is like robert smith of the cure are you excited to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame and without missing a beat robert super deadpan is like from the sounds of it not nearly as excited as you (laughs) i love that guy and that's my terrible Robert Smith voice, but... It's no jewel impersonation, but it'll do. <laughs> oh, he's amazing. Now, before we get into your history, there is a parallel between Robert's history and our own. Oh? We've been friends since we were 14 in high school drama class. Yep. When Robert was 14, he was in a school drama class, and in that drama class, he met a girl named Mary Poole, and... They have pretty much spent their life together since. That's amazing. He and Mary were married on August 13th, 1988. More about Robert's personal life and a brief history of the band. Yes. Robert was raised by parents who were musically inclined. He started to learn the piano when he was just six years old. But his sister Janet, as he puts it, was a piano prodigy. So sibling rivalry made me take up guitar because she couldn't get her fingers around the neck. He started taking guitar lessons at age nine, although he didn't have a guitar of his own and would borrow his older brother Richard's guitar. He borrowed it frequently enough that his brother ended up just gifting him the guitar for Christmas when Robert was 13. Nice. It was also around that time when he... Sister Janet, Brother Richard, and a few of Richard's friends started playing music together as a band under the name of Crowley Goat Band. 
Now, they did that because they were from Crowley, right? Well, they were living in Crowley at the time, yes. Right. He was actually from a different town, and when he moved to Crowley, apparently he got made fun of a lot because his accent was different. Hmm. It was around the same time that Robert started playing music with friends from school and along with Mark Sicogno, Michael Dempsey, Alan Hill, and Lowell Tolhurst, they made one performance together under the name Obelisk at a school function, after which they moved from Notre Dame Middle School to St. Wilfred's Comprehensive and somewhere in the shuffle lost Hill and started playing under the name The Group because there were no other bands in the school, so they decided they'd be too cool for an actual name. Gotta love that confidence. Yeah, at such a young age, there's still a nice swagger to that. Right. So around the same point, they played with the name Brat Club, and then Mark left because most Marks are lame, and <laughs> Porl Thompson stepped in, and they started going by the name Malice. And all the while, the band kept shifting people, and people were switching around on instruments, and so they decided once again to change their name to Easy Cure, which was taken from a song written by Tolhurt. Now, this seems to be a common trend for us. We're covering a band that when young, they entered a talent competition. Unlike many of the other honorable mentions that we've had, Easy Cure won, and they signed a deal with a German label on May 18th, 1977. And just for context, that is before either of us were born. And after they signed the contract, their lead singer, who was not Robert Smith, when they started playing, Robert had originally been on the keys. And during the years of name changes and lineup shifts, he ended up playing rhythm guitar. Hmm. And as he says it, when we started, I wasn't a singer. I was the rhythm. No. <laughs> we, we don't need to try to sound like Robert for every quote. Okay. Okay. Well, I felt left out. <laughs> When we started, I wasn't the singer. I was the rhythm guitarist who wrote all these weird songs. We went through about five different singers, and they were useless, basically. I always ended up thinking, I could do better than this. I mean, I hated my voice, but I didn't hate it more than I hated everyone else's voice. So I thought, if we can get away with that, I can be the singer. And I've worked on that basis ever since. <laughs> that is quite possibly my favorite origin story from any band I've ever read. I hate my singing, but not as much as I hate everybody else singing, so I'll do it. I love him, and that's just such an incredibly Robert thing. It makes so much sense in the context of him. It does. Now, Easy Cure did some recordings, but their label disliked them all, to the point that the label suggested that they play cover songs, which was an idea that the band, in turn, disliked. <laughs> and so it was no surprise that by March of 78, the contract was dissolved, and then to distance themselves from that whole debacle, they dropped the word easy and started simply playing as the cure. And while not an instantaneous overnight success, the band with Robert at the helm and everyone else rotating in and out and sometimes back again until being out again, continued to gain traction and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it seemed that they peaked and they put out wild mood swings. And for the first time in a long time, no one cared and it seemed like the band might be done after 20 years and 10 albums. So Robert decided that if it was all over, then they'd go out with one last hurrah, and he wanted to make Bloodflowers to be the penultimate Cure album to end all Cure albums. But before we get too far down this road and further into Bloodflowers, Thomas. I don't like this part. I know you weren't a Cure guy in high school. I was not. But you've come around to them, so I'm curious... For you, what changed, and when did you realize that Mark is always right? Yeah, we'll give Mark this one. 
<laughs> you were right about the cure. I was wrong. I would say I really came around to them sometime during college. I think I experienced my first heartbreak. And in that moment, I could relate more to Robert Smith. Mm -hmm. His pain and his just the emotion in his voice didn't resonate with me before that. And so I really got into The Cure. And I bought nearly all of their albums that I could find and get my hands on. And yeah, I was really, I really got into The Cure for several years. And then when Christine and I were dating and a bunch of my Cure albums had gone missing, i.e. been stolen from my house. She did what any decent poor college student would do, and she went on to LimeWire or Napster and acquired the entire Cure canon and gave it to me for Christmas. I was expecting that story to go in a place that she had stolen them, but that's even sweeter. Nope, she hadn't stolen them. She is a big Cure fan, though. She does love Robert Smith. So that's one we agree on. Nice. On the flip side, you were, in fact, a Cure fan. I was. What's your history with The Cure? I had mentioned before on prior episodes, at least on the Social D episode, how my oldest brother Peter was very influential in a lot of my music from a young age. And some of my earliest memories are just sitting in Peter's room with him, listening to music. And he'd put tapes on and quiz me and be like, okay, who's this? What song is this? And he was, at the time, really into Depeche Mode, The Cure, The Smiths, that whole realm. And he had the big Boys Don't Cry poster on his wall. And nice. I don't know if there's really a time that I was ever not aware of The Cure. They were just always there. They were ever present in your musical upbringing? Yeah. And so once I got into the awkward, angsty world of high school and girls and feelings, then Robert definitely started making a lot more sense. As well as occasionally some of his fashion choices just for the sake of being a weird kid in high school, because I was. You were. I remember you and Stacy went to school dances in full Robert. There was only the homecoming. Was it only one? Okay, but you went more than once. There were plenty of days where I would just do Robert hair because I had long hair and I could. And it bugged the heck out of the assistant principals when I did. But there was no rule against it. Exactly. But there should have been a rule against creating the hole in the ozone layer, but that I can only attribute to your hair product. I did go through a lot of cheap hairspray to achieve Robert hair. But yes, you are correct that there was um, senior year homecoming. I don't know what the theme was, but our friend Stacy and I, we went together and we just kind of decided to do our own. And I did a Robert get up and she went for a Susie Sue. That's the only homecoming picture I remember from high school is the picture of you two because it was pretty epic. So blood flowers. You missed an important piece of history that I found while researching this that I thought was cool. What's that? About the other band that Robert Smith played in early on. They went on tour and opened for the Banshees, and the Banshees guitarist quit on the tour. And so Robert Smith filled in, and then he played on some of their records. Robert Smith had two stints with Susie and the Banshees. He did. One, like you said, in 79, and then he spent another two years he went back. in the early 80s. Just kind of cool. Yeah. And then he and one of the other people from Susie and the Banshees, they started a side project called The Glove. Yep. He also has a one-off solo song that he's put out called Pirate Ships. I haven't heard this. Is it good? It's a cover of a song somebody else wrote. I forget why he did it, but I thoroughly enjoy it. Huh. I'll have to check that out. So Bloodflowers. I do want to say, as we're getting into this, I think the most surprising thing I learned was that Bloodflowers was not their debut album and that The Cure was releasing stuff previously to this. That's true. Their 2000 album, Bloodflowers, was not the debut album of The Cure. <laughs> Neither was their 2004 self-titled album. <laughs> Bloodflowers was produced by Robert Smith, 
and a gentleman named Paul Corkett, okay. who was a British producer and engineer whose production credits, in addition to Blood Flowers, include Biffy Clyro, Blackened Skies, and Placebo's fantastic black market music, nice. in addition to a handful of other records I've never heard of because I'm guessing they never crossed over to the Americas. Okay. But as an engineer, he helped capture the magic of a bunch of albums that I love, like Bjork's debut, The Cure's Wild Mood Swings, Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes, Catherine Wheel's Happy Days, mm. 16 Horsepower's Secret South, and Placebo's Without You, I'm Nothing, mm. plus albums from Suede, Uri Heap, and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That's a nice lineup. Yeah, he worked on some really great records there, in addition to his work with The Cure. When did they release Bloodflowers? Bloodflowers was released February 2nd of 2000 in Japan, February 14th in Europe, and February 15th of 2000 in the United States. And there's an extensive interview that Robert did for German TV around the time of the release, and we'll be quoting from that pretty heavily during this episode. Starting right now with him <laughs> discussing the decision for the Valentine's release, he says, I thought it would be darkly romantic. Valentine's Day when you're young is a day of unrequited love. It's actually one of the most depressing days of the year because you find yourself unable to tell the person. You can't bring yourself to openly admit, and it's a terrible feeling. I thought there were elements of that in Bloodflowers, that sense of love never, ever being able to be perfect. I can get that vibe. I can feel that. As we previously mentioned, this is not The Cure's debut album, but Bloodflowers is their 11th studio album, and they did this as a follow-up to Wild Mood Swings with Robert knowing that this may be their last. Wild Mood Swings was an album that Robert is not fond of and was never fully satisfied with. He said, I think as an album, I was kind of disappointed with it. It was very unfocused and kind of incoherent, and it had very little emotional depth. So I wanted Bloodflowers to compete on that level with disintegration and pornography and faith. I wanted to make people feel something. That was kind of my starting point. With Wild Mood Swings, I picked the songs purely because I thought they worked as songs. I didn't worry about whether they worked with each other. With Bloodflowers, I was very conscious of picking particular types of songs musically. Lyrically, I wrote the album in about three weeks. I knew what I wanted to write about, and I just sat down and wrote it. I'd never thought about it before, but Wild Mood Swings in that context makes total sense. It is all over the place. There are good songs there, but it doesn't play as a cohesive album. It's not my favorite Cure album, but I am sad to hear that it was, you said, I think the wording you used, it went virtually ignored mm -hmm. at the time. For the songs on there, that's not fair. No, it isn't. However, it is important to remember that at the time of making Wild Mood Swings, Robert had just finished an extended legal battle with other Cure founding member and a personal friend of his since they were five years old, Lowell Tolhurst. God, that sucks. And the issue was over rights to use the Cure name. And while Smith technically won, he still felt worn out and probably a little defeated by the whole ordeal. And additionally, prior to Wild Mood Swings, both Pearl Thompson, who at the time was Robert's brother-in-law after marrying Robert's sister Janet, and longtime Cure drummer Boris Williams had both left the band. So it was a very turbulent time for both Robert and The Cure. I mean, he's emotionally wrecked. Yeah. And the band is kind of in a state of disarray and all of that backed by Wild Mood Swings being met with disinterest and what the label claimed were low sales, which is kind of ridiculous he talks about how it sold around two million copies and to that point robert joked about how most bands would love to sell two million albums isn't that double platinum it is so they're saying we're sorry your album's not good enough you're not selling enough you're only double platinum 
Your albums gone double platinum were very disappointed in you. For The Cure, it was lower than prior albums had sold, and for that reason, it was seen as a failure. I find this really frustrating, and again, we've bashed on the music industry. Mm -hmm. So to have a band thinking about ending their career over double platinum just boggles my freaking mind, Mark. Now, in addition to only selling 2 million copies, (laughs) they were also having lower ticket sales as well. So all of this left Robert in a very low place and feeling very much uncertain about the future. And as a result, there were a lot of rumors and talk about The Cure as a band might finally be at its end. I do want to give a spoiler alert. This was not their final album. (laughs) They have released other albums since, so we got more from them. That's right, folks. This wasn't the final Cure album. Thank you for listening. This has been Once Every Two Weeks. We'll see you next time. (laughs) At the time, Robert did make the comment, when we were making it, everyone in the group believed it was the last Cure album. There was no point in making a record like Bloodflowers if you really think you're going to do something else. I wanted Bloodflowers to be so perfectly the Cure that there was no point in making another Cure album. I wanted it to be the best rather than the last. That was more important to me. Robert had been known to tell the band that it was the last album before. On the prior couple of recordings, it was kind of a thing going into the studio where Robert would tell the band, this is going to be the last Cure album. And he would intentionally do that just to get the band to be at their best because his whole theory was if everyone's playing with the thought that this is the last album, then it's going to be the best that the album can be. And so it kind of been out there for a few years that, you know, with every album, there was talk of it being their last. But this one was a little bit more serious. And this time, he maybe actually meant it. Now, I want to take a quick aside, because Robert had been known in interviews to kind of be a liar. (laughs) Yeah. There is an interview that he gave during promotion for this that he gave to the Launch Interactive magazine, where he laments the advent of the internet because he could no longer get away with lying to reporters. And fun fact, one of the main lies he used to spread about himself, not just to the press, but also to his label in the early days of the band, was about him having a fear of flying. And he did that just so he could kind of manage tour expectations. And there were at least two big early U.S. tours that The Cure did where they came over to America via ship, which he described as being a very civilized way to travel. Still, going into the studio, Robert was apprehensive about how it would all turn out, since at this point, he was the only original member, and some of the other players had only been in the band for a very short while. And he's put a lot of pressure on this. The drummer who took over for Boris, he talks about how when he was like 13, his father brought home a Cure album. (laughs) And so he had grown up a Cure fan, and he's now in the band, and it's his first record with them, and it may very well be the last of this band that he's loved since childhood. So I'm sure it was a very awkward place for all the members to be in. Oh, that's so much pressure. And yet, in the end... The pressure may have worked yeah, because it exceeded Robert's expectations. He said, I was very pleasantly surprised with how Bloodflowers turned out because I didn't think it would be this good. When we finished and I finished mixing it, I took a week off and then we all came back and listened to it. And I thought, this is a really great album. I suppose it's quite unusual for a band to be making their best work 20 years after they've started. 
Usually bands don't do this. I thought maybe it's inevitable that disintegration will have been the finest thing that I've done. And it's just kind of a decline from there. I'm delighted that it isn't. (laughs) I really love that. Yeah. And Robert has on many other occasions said that this is his favorite of the cures albums. We talked about Bloodflowers being released in February of 2000. It was actually ready to go. The record was done and ready for release in May of 99, which was Robert's original plan. Because Robert wasn't concerned about the millennium and he wanted to finish the decade on a high note and then start the next decade fresh. But the label was concerned that the album wouldn't get enough attention with the whole Y2K thing and other acts trying to squeeze in one last album before the century rollover. But as it turned out, the other major labels were thinking the same thing. And when Bloodflowers dropped, it had to compete with so many new releases like Warren Zavon, Lagwagon, Tracy Chapman, Madonna, Camelot, Violent Femmes, Mindless Self-Indulgence, Mill and Colon, Air, Oasis, ACDC, Bone Thugs and Harmony, Bloodhound Gang, hold on, I'm going to take a breath, Steely Dan, Rollins Band, Black Crows, and Three Doors Down's debut, plus greatest hits compilations from MC5 and the Beach Boys. And last but not least, Jimmy's triumphant return to the Smashing Pumpkins with Machina. That was a lot to compete with. And all of that wasn't all the same day, but it was within like two weeks on either side of the Bloodflowers release. So there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And all of that, to some degree, factored into poor sales numbers. And when I say poor sales numbers, I'm saying it like we did before. Most bands would be stoked to get the sales that The Cure got. Mm-hmm. But the label felt it was too low for a band that was as big as The Cure. But as you've probably picked up, Robert didn't care about this. He says... Commercially, The Cure isn't as popular as we once were, which didn't matter to me because when we did pornography, we weren't commercially successful. So I've lived without commercial success and I can happily live without it again. So I don't expect Bloodflowers to be the number one album around the world. But I think that there will be a great deal of satisfaction from people who are genuine Cure fans. I think they will love Bloodflowers more than anything since Disintegration. So I'm excited about it, not worried, because I know in my heart that Bloodflowers is a really good record. And in the event that there is somebody out there listening who is unfamiliar with The Cure's catalog, we should specify that in here when he says, we did pornography, he's talking about an album The Cure released entitled Pornography. They were not in the adult video business at any point in their career. Good call. It's probably a good thing that Robert felt so strongly about the album from the start because not everyone loved it, and those that didn't like it loved to hate on it. One review ran with the headline, Goth Awful, while Entertainment Weekly claimed Bloodflowers to be one of the band's most affecting works. So the reviews were truly all over the place, and in possibly the most shocking turn of events, Pitchfork was not leading the negative pack. (laughs) In fact, they gave it a 7.5 out of 10, which feels incredibly generous for Pitchfork, and I'm guessing probably cost the reviewer their job since it made it seem for just a second that Pitchfork might actually not hate music after all. (laughs) But in stepped Rolling Stone to pick up Pitchfork slack, and they gave it a a 2.5 out of 5 stars. And all of this on the back of negative reviews that gave low scores because the album by the band The Cure was being accused in all of those bad reviews of sounding like an album by the band The Cure, which, as previously mentioned, was Robert's entire intent in making Bloodflowers from the start. We love, we love Disintegration. Don't make an album that ever sounds like anything from Disintegration again. You're a band that has an entirely unique and distinct sound. How dare you sound like yourself? What? What kind of lunacy is that? It is. 
from start to finish, this album is so good. It's so good from a band that's consistently good. So you're going to punish them for sounding good. But then again, Robert and Morrissey had kind of always butted heads. So there is a working theory, maybe just by myself, (laughs) that all that negative press was written by fans of the bands, the Smiths, no relation, of who Robert once said, people who are Smith fans are failed musicians who end up as journalists. So they write the cure out of history because they don't like us. (laughs) I know that you love a good hot take. And I think Robert might just be the king of hot takes. I'm loving it. I'm here for it. Prior to The Cure kicking off their world tour in support of Bloodflowers, they announced very last minute that they were going to be doing a six-show mini-US tour of small venues. And one of the stops that they were making was in Dallas. They announced on like Thursday that tickets were going on sale the next day for the Dallas show that was happening the following Monday. And so me and our friend Stacy, we skipped school on Friday. Originally, we debated if we needed to drive to Dallas to try to get tickets. But then we're like, wait a second, why should we drive to Dallas where there's going to be lines when we can just go to the Ticketmaster here where nobody from Dallas is going to drive to Houston to get tickets? So we went to the mall to go to hang out at the Ticketmaster that was in the JCPenney's or the Macy's or wherever it was. And the lady that was running the ticket counter herself was a Cure fan. And since there was no one else in line ahead of us, once it hit whatever time the tickets went on sale, she's logging in, trying to get two tickets, and the system locked her out. She refreshes the system and was able to get two tickets. And I went home and I called my dad to tell my dad that I would be skipping school on Monday to go to Dallas. Huh. Which, at that point, I was 18, and I was an adult, and I was living on my own. I was just giving him the courtesy in case the school called to let him know that I was absent from school. That's funny. And so, Monday... Stacy and I skipped school. We drove up to Dallas, got there an hour or two before doors. So we were in a good spot when the doors opened. So we were able to get inside and be almost right up against the stage. And it was only The Cure playing. And they played for nearly three hours. And they did two encores. And and seeing The Cure in a small venue is easily one of my top two all-time best concert experiences. Nice. I want to go back and slap high school Tom for not going. Yeah, he missed out. And he also missed out of the fun of on the drive up. We stopped for lunch at the Dairy Queen in Centerville, Texas. Fancy. Which is small Texas town. And I'm in my full Robert get up. And the whole time we're eating, everybody in the restaurant is actively trying to avoid making eye contact. <laughs> it was amazing. That's funny. That night after the show, we crashed with Stacy's uncle and aunt. Next morning, we got up and we drove home and made good time. So we were able to actually make it to school in the middle of the school day. Being entirely less motivated than usual to care about school because I knew that life from that point was all going to be downhill from there. (laughs) Let's jump into the album. I like it. It's not my favorite album. I'm curious, what's your favorite Cure album? I disagree with Kyle and I will argue forever that Wish is their greatest album. Okay. I know that some people claim that it's a little too all over the place, but I think that's what its strength is, is showcasing the diversity of them as a band. And Bloodflowers, while not my favorite, probably does shift in the top three to five. And as such, it's never been entirely out of my normal music rotation. So when we decided to do this one, I didn't feel the need to revisit it simply to familiarize myself with it like we have with others, because I have listened to this more than once in the last 20 years. Okay. But since I do take this whole podcasting thing serious enough, I did, you know, sit down at a few points to be a little bit more critical with my listenings and on my 
my first critical listen through, the main thought I had was that as an album, it really is an album in a complete sense. Mm -hmm. It's not about a couple of singles or feel-good pop songs. This is the kind of album that you would put on when you turn out the lights and you lay on your bedroom floor and stare up at the glow-in-the-dark stars on your ceiling while trying not to fixate on why the girl you like isn't calling you after work like she said she would, even though her shift ended like an hour ago. Not that you're watching the clock or anything because the lights are out and you're laying on the floor listening to The Cure. I thought it was good to pop in a pair of AirPods, relax in the dark while listening to it somewhere over the Atlantic. Nice. But I feel like you're telling a very specific memory. I don't know that I am. I just feel like that would have been a thing I would have done in high school. What's interesting is during that listen, I also realized glancing at the track listing of the album on my computer that the names of the songs were mixed up. That somehow when I digitized my CD years ago, it must have autofilled with the slightly different Australian and Japanese release version of the track listings. And I had just never noticed before because when I listened to this album, I listened to it as an album. I know all the songs and I've never needed to follow along with the titles. And I've been listening to it like that for 20 years and I never noticed because it's all about this album as a complete album. And as I'm having that realization and then looking up more Robert quotes, I came across one from him where he said, with Bloodflowers, it's almost like the old days before videos where you used to listen to albums in the dark. That's what I wanted Bloodflowers to be. I don't want to impose pictures on the record because it's an old fashioned kind of record that way. With the album, even Robert talks about how he very much wanted Bloodflowers to be seen as a whole piece of work, not just individual parts. And as part of that, he intentionally, against the label's wishes, chose to not put out anything from the album as a single. Hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about a couple other songs. But for now, we're going to talk about Out of This World. Track one. And before we jump in, I am going to give a shout out to the sponsor I'm continually wooing at songmeanings.com. Okay. And it is about this song, but more about the broader album. So I think it's great to lead with. This is from 12345678900B. Okay. Back in 2004. This song is a brilliant introduction to what becomes a revelation. The entirety of the Bloodflower CD begs the listener to break down with Robert Smith and disengage from reality while accepting it at the same time. It is, quite simply, about saying goodbye to the world, to your loved one, to your loyal fan base. It's about discovering the real meaning of love and realizing that you cannot have it. I love this song. I love The Cure. Bloodflowers will always be the best album ever made and Robert Smith's the most creative genius alive. Well, I like that quote. It's a good quote. Usually we don't get good quotes from songmeaning.com, but this one did. Yeah. But I do have to point out that Robert Smith will not always be the most creative genius alive. Because somebody is more creative or because he's going to die? human frailty Mm. i know you have your sponsor but i try to avoid looking at how other reviewers break down songs before i go through and make my own notes i don't want to just be constantly quoting someone else however there was a retrospective review done earlier this year by god is in the tv that aptly stated that this first track opens like a flower which that is a great description for it. I do like that. The beat fades in and there's this atmospheric build and along with cymbals that start to swell. And there's a point where the guitar bursts in from there and the song blooms forward. Yeah, it's anticipatory. I agree with that. I like it. 
And mind you, there's nothing that's super showy about any of it. It's actually a fairly simple beat. It's an easy acoustic guitar lead pattern. Eventually, some electric stuff comes in over it in waves. And then further in at nearly two minutes, a lead guitar soloing a nice light melody comes in. And it just builds this classic cure sound on classic cure sound until finally Robert's vocals join the party, kind of subdued and almost hushed. What carries the song are the lyrics. Mm -hmm. The song comes out of the gate powerful with lyrics like, always have to go back to real lives. And then, then the second time he repeats that, he says, but real lives are the reason why we want to live another life. We want to feel another time. And the next time he thinks that line, he says, but real lives are why we stay for another dream, another day, for another world, another way. It's poetic. Certainly. Even the actual opening line, when we look back at it all, as I know we will, you and me, wide-eyed, I wonder, will we really remember how it feels to be this alive? And that's really cool, given the context that he thinks this is their last album, yeah. or this might be their last album. It's super on point for where the band is, it is, and with all the turmoil and uncertainty, and yet, despite the normal kind of downer tone that the music has, that The Cure does so well, there's still an optimism in those lyrics, pointing out and talking about staying present in the moment. Mm-hmm. Essentially just, you know, regardless of what's going on, be aware of where you are, make the memories, and carry that with you. Up next, we have Watching Me Fall, and I read something that I took down and did not validate enough. Okay. But now I'm seeing, this is probably one of Robert's lie interviews. Okay. Because the song is supposedly, inspiration came from the song when Robert Smith was reading an article about Rohibnol, which he says he took for his fear of flying. Huh. Okay. It was quoting him in an article, but I'm going to chalk that up to probably falling for Robert Smith's lies. Then again, he does also have a history of experimentation with substances, so he very well could have been playing He says with- in this quote, it helped me overcome not quite a phobia, but I was incredibly loath to get on a plane for seven years. It helped me break through the barrier. I found the outcry that surrounded Rohibnol was a lot. The images that they used were quite powerful, the testimony of the women involved. I used some of that and wove it in with this particular experience, then tried to marry the idea of what I sometimes perceive as my own decline over the years since disintegration. I put that into context how I felt then and how I feel now. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Lyrically, there is a lot of strong imagery here and some of it can be interpreted as quite sexual. And a lot of it is talking about watching himself in kind of an out of body experience. And while there are plenty of songs in this album that make me think of plenty of other songs in the Cure catalog and musically, there's a lot about this that does that for me. But a couple of nights ago, I was just reading through the lyrics without any of the music and something about the lyrics themselves, the imagery of watching himself and that whole out of body experience thing kept making me think that instead of anything from the Cure catalog, this actually felt more like a companion piece to the track The Recluse by the band Cursive from their Ugly Organ album. Hmm. I'm going to have to go listen to that in that context now. This is one of my least favorite songs on the album. Do you know why? Nah, just didn't, just didn't slap for me. Just wasn't feeling it? That's not to say it's bad, because I enjoy the entire album, and I listen to it from beginning to end numerous times for this, and I enjoy it. Yeah, it does feel a little bit weird because of how the opening track is. This one ignores the acoustic, soft vibe that is established by the first one, and it just kind of starts off texturing electric guitars to build this dark, sonic wall. And the only thing that is kind of carried over from that first track is the pace, 
and there's no real rush to this one. It takes its time to build. And it's another example that short radio-friendly intros have never been the Cure's strong suit. This, like so many other classic Cure tracks, lets the tone sink in, and it ensures that the vibe is established before the words start. And so it's no surprise that the average Cure song is around six minutes. However, this song, track two, Watching Me Fall, clocks in as the longest song in the Cure catalog at 11 minutes and 13 seconds. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's long. And while I agree with you that this isn't my favorite on the album, I think there is still kind of a nice climax during minute eight of the track when there's this series of seemingly cathartic wails where Robert appropriately belts out the word scream. And it's actually kind of a nice dynamic vocal performance from him. I am not coming up with any clever segues for this album. Maybe you can look for them somewhere where the birds always sing. Ooh. That's track three. It is. Where the birds always sing, it starts with a drum beat that does have like a far eastern vibe to it. The guitars come in quick, but without the feedback and distortion of the prior track. Where do you feel like this song would fit in with the rest of the Cure discography? On the whole, there's a lot of this album that makes you think disintegration, and Robert was trying to follow up something on the level of disintegration, and he cited not just disintegration, but pornography as well as being two albums that were classically the cure in their very essence. And to me, this one, I think, feels like it's got a much more updated pornography sound than a carryover from disintegration than a lot of the other songs on the album. And I think this one feels like it could very well be at home next to tracks off of that one like a short-term effect or a strange day but with significantly less vocal reverb that's fair lyrically it's not as gloomy as robert can get but by no means is it a happy song i almost want to say it's somewhere in the middle but really it's some sort of middle ground between realism and nihilism and i remember in high school i started reading albert camus as a result of other cure songs that robert had written based on albert's writings are you sure he read camus And this feels very much like it's just Robert writing a song based on Camus' bleak, indifferent outlook on life. Camus is part of the reason I took French. Just for those who did not know, the first single from The Cure was Killing an Arab, which is based on the Le Strange by Albert Camus, The Stranger. Which Robert has said he doesn't regret writing. He only he wishes that he would have picked a different title for that particular song. He opens up with, the world is neither fair nor unfair. The idea is just a way for us to understand, but the world is neither fair nor unfair. So one survives, the other die, but you always want a reason why. But the world is neither just nor unjust. So, yeah. Feels very nihilist. Very matter of fact. Or as Marcus said, it it just feels very bleak. I like that. I like that term for it. Maybe someday we'll relate more to that. Yes, maybe someday. Track four. This is a fun song. It is. So fun that Robert didn't know if he wanted to put it on this album. He said it was actually the one that he was unsure about. It was the only one that he felt was slightly different in style to the other ones. It was a bit more upbeat, but without it, balance tips too far the other way. So it's placed well after such a bleak song. Yeah, and it is probably a good thing that he left it on the album. 
because maybe someday went on to be the accidental or unintentional single for the album. Yep. Since, like we said, Robert was insistent that the band not release a promotional song because the album was meant to play as a whole thing, the label picked Maybe Someday and Out of This World as songs to send out in advance to radio stations since radio stations don't like to play whole albums at once. And without a video or any push behind it, Maybe Someday still peaked at number 10 in the U.S. on the alternative airplay charts in his own words robert said with maybe someday i wanted something that was actually quite naive sounding it's strange in america they've picked up maybe someday to go onto radio and i think it's the weakest song on the record so either it shows that i know nothing about what works on radio or people in america like something different <laughs> i think it can be both yeah very much could in fact be both as we've mentioned already, The Cure are great at long, bleak expanses of sonic landscapes. But the songs where they walk that thin high wire between being an actual rock song with an outlook that still makes you want to spend all day in bed crying for no real reason, that's where I think the band shines the brightest. Songs like From the Edge of the Deep Green Sea, A Letter to Elise, A Foolish Arrangement, This Twilight Garden, and Maybe Someday. So I get Robert kind of resents the success of his pop songs, and it maybe made him apprehensive about this one, but it doesn't surprise me at all that this did as well as it did, because, spoiler alert, it is going to be my number one pick. Me too. Now, while not super deep or profound, there are some lovely parts where Robert shows his strength as a lyricist with the simple changes that he makes from one verse to the next in just minor word choices. So the first time through, he says, no, I won't do it again. I don't want to pretend if it can't be like before, I've got to let it end. The second time through, he says, no, I won't do it some more. Doesn't make any sense. If it can't be like it was, I've got to let it rest. There's instances throughout where he's saying very similar things, but with a slightly different turn of phrase that gives it new meaning in context with how the rest of the lyrics play out. Yeah. Like I said, that kind of is a nice showcase of his talents as a writer. Yeah, I agree. But as a performer, there are some lovely bits that showcase his strengths. And one of his strengths is always in showing his vulnerabilities. And in this song, the very first time he delivers the line, maybe someday, as he's giving it, there's this point where there's a slight warble in his voice. It doesn't quite crack. But if you're listening for it, you can tell that it's just because he means what he's saying. He feels it and that he's putting all of himself into it. And he does that on plenty of songs, but it might be more powerful with this one, considering he's going all in on the song that he wanted to leave off the album. That kind of commitment to even the ones that he may not care about as much. Yeah. Putting himself that much into it, I think, is why we love him. I can get on board with that. It's a good song. It is. And if you listen to it, you would never know that he was not 100% bought in on it. Yeah. Like you said, he's putting all of himself in it. Indeed. Which brings us to track five. The Last Day of Summer. The Last Day of Summer. Cannot come soon enough. We were 120 yesterday in Tulsa. Wow. Heat Index. Anyway, Last Day of Summer. After the energy of Maybe Someday, track five takes the time to let the album catch its breath with what is pretty much a companion piece to the album's opener out of this world. The Last Day of Summer is mid-tempo with an acoustic guitar, complemented with electric accompaniments that build and play off each other, and there's a lovely piano bit that comes in around 120, and just like Out of This World, the vocals enter at about 210. 
and lyrically, it's more of Robert's wistful uncertainties. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to note that there was a time where longer intros were more common, but it was not in the year 2000. No. So. Now, I will give them credit because the last time I saw The Cure earlier this year, when they started the show, they opened with a brand new song that they haven't put out yet. But they just spent the first like five minutes of that song jamming. And in addition to just them traditionally having long intros, I also saw it kind of as a thing of Robert being so aware and so connected and so in tune with the audience that they were doing it to give everyone in the arena notice, hey, the show's starting, giving a chance for people to come in, to get their seats, to come back from the break between the opener. Okay, so you wouldn't miss anything in your haste to return? Yeah, it's like if you'd gotten up and you're like, okay, I don't know exactly when they're starting, but let me go to the bathroom, let me get a beer, whatever. Oh, music's starting, let's get back to our seats. And you had plenty of time to do so before they got into the meat of it. I dig it. It does a nice job of segueing the album, too, from the high poppiness of maybe someday to where we're going. Yeah. It slows things down here, sets up nicely for the next couple of songs that play very well together. And it's another reminder that the intent of Bloodflowers was for this to be a complete album. Everything working together for the greater whole. And so sequencing very much comes into play. If you feel it. Yeah. And it's something they achieved very well. Absolutely. You feel the cohesiveness. Yeah, no question. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Which kind of brings us to our next song. Track six, buts. <laughs> you win the segue of the night award. Track six, there is no if. This one I found interesting. Robert did all the instruments for this as well, right? He did. Because this is one that he wrote not specifically for this album. It's the only one he didn't write for Bloodflowers because he had written it years before when he was 19. And it was one that they had demoed a handful of times for other albums and he was never satisfied with it. It's kind of an acoustic song. Mm -hmm. And he always thought that when he had tried doing it before, it always sounded too hippie-ish. But this time around, everyone in the band heard it, and because it was a different group of guys who were hearing it maybe for the first time, and just with whatever else they were doing, they felt that it would work really nice, and Robert was pretty much peer pressured by the band to put this one on the album. Mm -hmm. And like you said, he plays all of the instruments himself, and since he had written the lyrics at 19, here we are in his life 20 years later, and he's admitted that lyrically it seemed very much like a song he probably would have written at any point in his career he then questions if that means if he's ever actually grown up as much as he would like to think he has none of us have robert none of us have nope but those lyrics that he wrote when he was 19 are still kind of gutting and robert claims that it's the only really depressing song on the album which he has been known to oversimplify by describing the message with his usual optimism as everything goes wrong and then you die ah so pleasant so pleasant he must be fun at parties <laughs> i probably just make stuff up at parties <laughs> tells lies to get people to believe start rumors about himself <laughs> so Robert and Mary, they don't have children of their own, but he does have 25 nieces and nephews, and they're known for taking the kids to Euro Disney, where Mickey Mouse speaks French for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And he tells a story that one year, Minnie Mouse came up to me and asked for my autograph, with all the children looking on in absolute amazement. It was one of the best and most disturbing moments of my life. Dude, I am jealous. That is amazing. Yeah. 
I bet he is actually quite fun at parties. I bet he is too. That's amazing. However, musically, there is no if. It's drastically different from it, but there's something about the feel of the song and the message you get from the lyrics that always make me feel like this could be a companion piece to the Cure track, How Beautiful You Are, Yeah, which is another one where he's just addressing problems with what should be an idealistic relationship. It seems to be a common trend. Yeah. Lyrically, this one fits in with what he was saying with regards to his quote about the Valentine's release and just the awkwardness of love and love never being how you imagine it could be. And I still remember just being moved and kind of gutted the first time I heard this one, just with the opening line. Remember the first time I told you I loved you. It was raining hard and you never heard. You sneezed and I had to say it over. I said, I love you, I said, and you didn't say a word. Ouch. Yeah. It's just such a pleasant feeling such a painful place to be in yeah i like this song a lot it's good it is good this next song does not match its title song seven the loudest sound why does it not match its title because it's not loud what it's not the loudest sound i've ever heard in my life it's not even the loudest sound on this album no but it does slap since I have been making parallels with all these Bloodflower tracks to other songs in the Cure catalog, this one I see could be a follow-up to A Chain of Flowers. But then again, you really don't need to look that far into their catalog because this also would be a great companion to the preceding track on this album. Musically, the way There Is No If fades out sets up and runs perfectly into this one. And lyrically, it kind of is a continuation of the same story. The sound of the lyrics don't jive as much to me as the other songs, which I like. When you say they don't jive, they feel at odds with each other, or they just feel at odds yeah. with the rest of the songs? With each other? Okay. It is a straightforward, simple tale about love growing old and growing stale. And the music is bright, and it literally pops, while Robert's vocals sound soft and incredibly aching. And it's an incredibly beautiful, giant bummer. Yeah. And I think it's effective because you have that contrast between the lyrics and the music. That makes it work. I think that's what it is, but... I can I can get it. The music is so just kind of bright, and Robert's vocals are so brittle, frail, full of pain. And lyrically, it's simple and it's short. It says, side by side in silence, they pass away the day. So comfortable, so habitual, and so nothing left to say. Side by side in silence, his thoughts echo round. He looks up at the sky. She looks down at the ground. Side by side in silence, they wish for different worlds. She dreams him as a boy. He loves her as a girl. And side by side in silence, without a single word, it's the loudest sound I've ever heard. And that takes us to Robert Smith's 39th birthday. It does. Track 8 is appropriately called 39. Is extra upbeat and happy. It is. Like we're talking about him potentially being good at parties for his 39th birthday. Instead of having a party, Robert holed up and wrote this happy number about which he said, everyone at some point in their life has thought, where did my passions go? You have to work harder as you get older because cynicism is like a creeping insidious enemy that can poison everything. Saying that the fire is almost out in 39 is not a statement that I'm giving up. I'm just being open and honest about the fact that what's driving me to express myself in the past is just not there like it used to be. That's neither a good nor a bad thing. It's just a fact. 39 was depressing for me too, Robert. 
Musically on this one, the guitar parts start out with a bit that sounds like it has a heavy Eastern musical influence. Then the drums come in and more guitars build. And this track might have the highest tempo on the album, but by no means is it a burner. The pace is just up enough so while it doesn't feel out of place with the rest of the songs on the album, it does feel more like a rock track than the rest of the songs on the album which is the perfect setup so Robert can get into it. And he really gives a great, dynamic, passionate, and sweeping vocal performance as he sings about being uncertain if his passion is gone for good. Yeah, so I get that this is about being 39, but if you don't feel that he's writing considering the end of The Cure with this, you're really missing the point. Yeah, well, he's staring a lot of things down at this point. Yeah. And then right out of the gate, it starts off, so the fire is almost out and there's nothing left to burn. I've run right out of thoughts, and I've run right out of words. Yep. This song is about the middle of the road for the album for me. Really? Yeah. I don't put it in my top, don't put it in my bottom. I think this is the middle of the roader. Okay. For the most part, the album is kind of a soft bummer, so this one does maybe feel a little more out of place. Mm -hmm. But again, I think the strength of this one comes back to just the dynamics of his vocal delivery, and I think that's where this one really shines. But they can't all be bangers? Nope. You wouldn't want it to be either. It needs a dynamic range on the album. Absolutely. But that brings us to track nine, the closing track. And it's the title track. Bloodflowers. Bloodflowers is their last song. Of this album. Last song of this album, not their other albums, because we've already covered the fact that they did release more. And a lot of what Robert Smith has written about has been songs based on his own reading. Mm-hmm. He says, with regard to this track, I read a book of letters of the painter Edward Munch. He said that he was sure he had done a good artwork when he felt that a blood flower popped out from his heart. I thought this image was very romantic. As a coincidence, about the same time, I was reading a poetry book about World War I, and one of the poems described how a wound in one of the soldiers hit by a bullet opened a blood flower in his body. I like this analogy between pain and art. Imagine that. In an interview with Dutch magazine Gaffa, Robert talked about not always being the greatest guitar player and how he usually had trouble with solos, but somehow the stars aligned and he knocked out the solo for the title track on the very first take. And in his own words, he says, The guitar solo in Bloodflowers. After I had done it in one take, I thought... This is what I've been wanting to create since I was very young. It was very personal. I have never played a guitar solo that I was actually happy with. This, and then coupled with the whole context that the solo is played in, Bloodflowers is as close to the perfect atypical Cure song as possible. And I really like that quote from him because it both illustrates his awareness of trying to make that perfect cure sounding record but also just how this experience ties in with that prior quote of him making art at a level where it felt like a blood flower popped out of his heart that is cool and this song is a slow build Mm -hmm. but it creates a nice effect of highs and lows that play building and building and then for the third verse it all drops out so you know that robert is getting super serious with what he's trying to say (laughs) 
lyrically in this, the second verse echoes the first verse, except everywhere in the first verse that the person addressing the narrator says never. In the second verse, the narrator has replaced never with always. And I don't think that as the narrator, he's intentionally just being a dick about things. In the third verse, it shifts format and he lays out and owns up to it, or at least he puts it all on his own overwhelming insecurities and apprehensions. And the last little bit sums it all up. It says... You give me flowers of love, I let fall flowers of blood. Oof. Beautiful. Yeah, it's strong imagery, poetically moving, very Robert Smith, and a very strong way... To end the album. To end the album, and potentially for The Cure to say goodbye. Yeah. Which, luckily, they didn't. If you haven't been paying attention to Tom at any other point, then surprise, The Cure is still around. Yay! I can imagine I get toned out a lot. Yeah. And I'm glad that they're still around because it gave me a chance to see them two other times. In addition to seeing them in that small venue touring for this, I saw them in 2008 in San Jose, which was an incredible experience on its own. I had a friend who out of the blue was like, hey, what are you doing tonight? And like nothing. And they're like, so I got tickets at work to go see The Cure. If you're interested, do you like them? And I was like, <laughs> um, Yes. And that tour was kind of amazing because they were playing a lot of the old stuff. They did three encores on that one. And they ended that show playing Boys Don't Cry, 1015 on a Saturday night, and Killing an Arab. That's awesome. And it was amazing. Them as a band pulling out all those first album tracks, just back to back to back, was fantastic. And sure, I already saw them earlier this year, and I've seen them three times. But if anyone wants to front us here at once every two weeks, passes to see them again at Riot Fest, I would be perfectly okay with seeing them a fourth time. Happy birthday, Tom. Oh, day after. Sorry. Of course, you're going to have to move quick because, you know, this is only going to post a couple of days before that. So if you have extra tickets, let us know fast. All right. So final thoughts, Mark? By way of final thoughts, there's this quote that Robert gave in the same interview that most of what we've been quoting tonight has come from, where he said, there's never a plan with the cure. When you look back at it, it looks like there's been a master plan that I've been calculating and I'm in control, but it's a false illusion. Decisions are made about the group by me entirely on instinct. It's just whether it feels right or not. If I did something and I didn't feel right about it, it wouldn't be right. There's that confidence. I think with Bloodflowers, Robert was completely right. And I think Bloodflowers totally holds up. And it totally holds up as one of the better albums in their catalog. Agreed. It's a great album. Do you have any? This album slaps. I really like it still. Mm -hmm. I like just putting it on and playing. Like I said, it's great ambiance, background. It's good if you actually listen to it. It's got a lot of opportunities for me. And songs from this do end up on my other playlists as well. So I I hear it pretty regularly. I don't know the last time I sat down and listened to it in its entirety. Mm -hmm. But I don't regret that I did it for this multiple times. Nice. So what are your top three? Coming in at number three for me Mm -hmm. is I really like 39. It resonates well with me. Really? It does. That just, that feeling. I think when I read that it was about him turning 39 and then, you know, my birthday around the corner. I thought as we were going through that one, that was when you were kind of iffy on. Or was that just an intentional mislead? It was an intentional mislead. Oh, okay. Because I already gave away other ones that I was doing earlier. Number two, I had a hard time with this one, Mm -hmm. but I think I'm going to land on Bloodflowers. Okay. And of course, number one is Maybe Someday, because that's one of my favorite Cure songs in general. Nice. 
What are your top three, Ombre? How many did we did we align on? Number three for me is Bloodflowers. Okay. Number two for me is There Is No If. Okay. That was vying for my top two. For my very first listen 20 more years ago, that was one that hit me and has always just resonated. Slapped? Slapped me in the face. Okay. And then, like I said, number one is Maybe Someday. In short, good album. Great album. It stands the test of time. Uh, You should listen to it. If you don't like it, I don't know what's wrong with you. Maybe give it another listen. Let us know what you think, though. Mark keeps up with our Instagram, posting cool stuff. And uh, the comments are open there, y'all. That's where you can also direct message us with those tickets to Riot Fest. Having opened with a quote from Trent Reznor during the Cure's induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think it appropriate to let another quote from the same speech play us out, as it were. Awesome. Trent said, The Cure have been in and out of fashion so many times in the last four decades that they have ended up transcending fashion itself. Their dedication to pushing sonic and artistic boundaries while making music for the ages wasn't always rewarded with glowing reviews in the press. The Cure are one of the most unique, most brilliant, most heartbreakingly excellent rock bands the world has ever been lucky enough to enjoy. Robert Smith is a 100% authentically Robert Smith kind of person who lives a 100% authentically Robert Smith kind of life. And he's used the singular vision to create the rarest of things, a completely self-contained world with its own sound, its own look, its own vibe, its own aesthetic, its own rules, which us the fans get to visit and immerse ourselves in whenever we like. And if that isn't the life's work of a true artist, I don't know what is. And with that practically perfect description, this has been another episode of Once Every Two Weeks. Thank you for listening. Once Every Two Weeks is sponsored in part by the Geek Lounge and Burrow Baracho Records. Mm-hmm.